You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. All right, well, I am excited to be with you here on another week of the Bible Nerd Podcast. I uh, I was thinking through some strategy stuff yesterday for ministry, finishing out this year and heading into 2021. And uh, if you've been listening the past couple episodes, I described kind of, you know, the goal for the podcast here really being um, expositional theology and apologetics. And uh, I realized that... Uh, now, this might be kind of corny, but um, you know, I, I think it makes sense um, that if you just flop the uh, the apologetics and the theology. So, in other words, you say it's um, expositional apologetics and theology. Then you have the um, I guess the acronym EAT E A T uh, eating the Bible, and I mean it sounds kind of funny, but this is the exact kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses, right? Talking about moving from the milk to the meat of the word. And that that is just precisely what the goal of this podcast is. It's to go um, through the Bible, but beyond just the practical application. The practical application is, of course, important. And I hope and pray that you attend a church where the pastor goes through the Bible in this sort of manner with a uh, heavy emphasis on practical application through expositional teaching of what's going on. Like, I really hope that that is the kind of environment that you are in. But a lot of times on Sunday morning and even Wednesdays, if your church does Wednesdays like ours does, it can be harder to get into some of the more theological stuff and the apologetics type stuff. This is just not the kind of um, thing that pastors are going to be regularly focused on because they just don't have time to address the practical needs and concerns of their people um, in addition to this. And so I hope and pray that this podcast is a place you can come that fills that gap and kind of um, helps to quench your thirst for deeper theological thinking and um, apologetics type of thinking. And I hope that you find this to be a useful resource for that. So I just think that makes so much sense. Expositional apologetics and theology. We're, we're eating the Bible, you know, we're, we're really taking it in here and, and uh, loving it all the way along. So I hope that you are appreciating this emphasis. I mean, I, I sure am. I love this because the Bible just kind of defines what we're going to be talking about, you know. Um, as we go through, we look and, you know, it's not whatever hobby horse I, I have on my mind or even whatever questions you have on your mind. Of course, uh, questions um, may um, arise as we go through, and that's fine and that's good and we can take questions, but... Um, it's important that we derive our thinking from the text. And so I, I love this approach because it helps us to do that in a, um, in a just an awesome way. So I want to dive in here right on in to this episode. And we're going to be talking about Jesus, the life and the light. And so we're in the book of John. And we're still in chapter 1. And we're going to cover a few verses today. Actually, we're going to cover verses um, 4 through 9 and look at some of the different themes that are going on here and reference. Um, we're going to reference two scholarly works uh, today that I think are going to be helpful for you. One of them is um, the uh, Black's commentary uh, for John. That was uh, Andrew Lincoln. And then we're also going to reference um, Grant Osborne's commentary 
on John as well. And um, I think they each have some useful things with respect to the themes that are in here. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. I think you're going to enjoy it. So um, just kind of, you know, to kind of start this out here, you know, this particular passage of scripture is all about really um, who Jesus is in a very, very meaningful sense. And I think some of the irony of that is like, for me, when I like, before I did all of this, before I ever got into podcasting or blogging or anything about Christianity, um, I had been a Christian for the vast majority of my life, and yet I paid almost zero attention to the Bible. Okay, now I mean I'm I'm ashamed to say that, but I truly believe that I became a genuine converted follower of Jesus at the age of four years old. I was very very young, but I remember that moment back to this day, and from that moment on, I have been living a life. Um, for Jesus, and yet I can definitely look back and see where I missed it, where I had so many shortcomings and shortfalls, and and I didn't really love the scriptures, and I wasn't reading them, right? I mean, I, I went through the programs, I memorized them when I had the chance, and um, but but you know, eventually as I grew older, like that stuff fell off. I fell out of the programs that were encouraging that kind of thing at church, and you know, it eventually got to the point where I mean. I had been fighting this call to to preach or teach. I didn't really know what it was, but I just I felt like something in me was 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 calling me to get more serious about this thing. And yet, I started to have doubts. Right? I started to to question and to wonder, like did who who is this guy? Does anybody even believe in Jesus outside of my little circle of, you know, church-going folks I've been around my entire life? Is there any evidence for this? Is there, you know, evidence from history, evidence from science? Is is there anything? And when I started to ask that question, I found the answers that I was looking for. I really did. And that's when I started to get into apologetics and I started to get into um, theology. And admittedly, I got into apologetics deeper first because that was kind of like I needed to get a grasp of that. I needed to kind of understand what the evidence was. And then what's really interesting is I started here in the past um, couple years really getting interested in the um, theological side of things. And what I have found is that so many times when I'm having to use apologetics, um, it's actually because of bad theology, right? It's it's bad theology that um, whoever I'm speaking with, either they grew up on or they were taught bad theology, um, or they, they cherry-pick verses out of the Bible and kind of create their own uh, bad theology. And when you call them out on it, you know, a lot of times they're just kind of like, well, this is how I read it kind of thing. And so they're, um, they're beyond reproof, you might say. Um, but so it's very important that we understand both the impl- implications of both apologetics and theology when we read through scripture. As we see themes in scripture, it's important that we look at it from this lens as well as the practical life application lens because it's equally important, right? Your theology is going to inform your daily practical life. And if you can't defend it, apologetics, then why believe it? We have to know why it's true. So that's why I'm passionate about uh, those particular aspects of this. And I think that with respect to what we're talking about today, uh, just the nature of Jesus, really who Jesus is, and um, 
what he embodied, you're going to see some really interesting stuff, I think. And it's just really, uh, I'm just thankful to him for leading me down this path and, and enabling me, frankly, to be able to lead others down this path as well. Okay, so to this point in the gospel, as we've been going along, we've seen Jesus as the word, and we've also seen Jesus as the creator. And there are some really deep themes that we we didn't even um, get into with those last couple things. For example, the connection between, um, which you're going to hear a little bit of this in in, um, today's episode, but the connection between uh, Jesus as the word, for example, and um, some things in the Jewish wisdom. Uh, tradition, right? And and some of that stuff I would encourage you to go back in and uh, check out. I think that would be very, very helpful and useful for you. I'm going to recommend uh, something to you that I think would be very, very helpful. Um, I am a, a, a diehard. I love uh, Logos Bible software, L-O-G-O-S, Logos, Logos. Um, and I, I think that everybody can start to dive in and start to use software tools like this um it's 2020 they have iphone apps they have awesome uh, mac apps and windows apps that will allow you to really dig into the bible so i think i would just really encourage you to download a tool like this and start getting into it and there are some even subscription packages and stuff you can get into with them that don't cost an arm and a leg that you can get um good quality resources for so if you have any questions about that feel free to email me at steve at steve com. I am uh, working on getting a partnership together with them, hopefully to be able to offer offer this to you guys at a discount, but I don't have that in place yet, so I'm not going to say anything more about that. I'm just, I'm working on that. I'm hoping that I can get something like that to you. Um, that would be really, really sweet if they could um, provide that for my audience. So we're working on it, okay? But I would encourage you to dive into software resources like Lagos Bible Software that will help you practically really begin to dig into some of this stuff, Okay. So we've talked about Jesus as the Word. Uh, that's the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent one, the self-existent one. Okay, and then Jesus as the Creator. So all life, all creation, flows from Him. Right? He created everything. He is distinct from the world. There are two buckets overarching. Okay, there is God, and then there is everything else. There is the uncreated one, and then there is everything that He created, and this kind of mindset in general was radical among the ancients. This is not the way. This is a very important point. This is not the way the ancient people thought. It's just not, right? Ancient people thought in more of this um, continuity worldview is how uh, John Oswald puts it. And John Oswald uh, wrote an awesome book called The Bible Among the Myths. I reviewed it on the blog a while back and uh, gave some of my key thoughts from it. So you're welcome to go check that out. Um, But it's really interesting how radical the monotheism of um, the Jewish tradition is. It's something entirely different from the way that other ancient cultures conceived of the world. In the Jewish tradition, history was actually meaningful. What you did in the world had huge implications on other people in the world. Jesus, um, or excuse me, uh, Yahweh, God, was actually acting in the world, and yet he was distinct from the world. He was not just merely a a force of nature or something like that that could be personified. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, the sun or the moon or the stars. He wasn't any of those kind of entities where you could visibly see him. He wasn't like that at all. 
he was transcendent. He was different. And so it's really significant that we see that. And, of course, so much of this is embodied in the creation story, the original creation story uh, in Genesis 1, and then leading into Genesis 2, we see some themes that make the biblical account far distinct from any of these other accounts. And it is that creation account that John is now tapping into. He's now tapping into that with this person, rather than focusing on the um, first person of the Trinity, God the Father, Yahweh, which is clearly where the focus of the first creation story is. Now, we move to the new creation. We move to John 1. And John 1 places its emphasis on the Word, the second person of the Trinity. And what we find is that creatorship, just as it was by Yahweh, is now also by the second person, by the Word, by the Logos, okay? And so we have this new creation story. That's the logic that John is tracking on. And as we move into our thinking for this uh, episode and for this lesson, that is exactly what uh, he's building on, is this idea of new creation and Jesus as being the one to accomplish that. So there are three truths that I believe we can find in uh, this particular portion of Scripture, John 1, 4 to 9. And as we look at them, they will help us to clarify and understand John's thinking as it relates to the new creation. And they're just some really cool, exciting themes here as we go along. So I'm excited to, to pull these out. Okay, so first here is that Jesus embodies the essence of life itself. Okay, he embodies the essence of life itself. So in uh, verse number four, it says this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So the word here I think is interesting um, for life is actually for physical life or sometimes it's used in the scriptures to denote eternal life versus the word bios okay which is to say someone's possessions or someone's livelihood there is an actual difference in the greek words here one of the things you have to realize is that greek is a very precise language not only are there um different words that that we translate into english today right where the actual original word that was used may have a slightly different meaning, but um, words even have, uh, for example, genders, right, w which can help you when you're looking to see like, okay, well, does this word actually modify this other word? If they mismatch on genders, well, then probably not, right? Um, so there are actually things that you can look at that go beyond just what you can see in the English that will help you determine how word usage should be applied. And so the same is in this word here. So because the word zoe is being used here to denote um, the kind of life that Jesus has and that Jesus brings, we know exactly what is in view. When it says that in him is life, we have this kind of dualistic meaning of in him is the essence of physical life and also eternal life. I'm going to read a short passage from uh, Lincoln here in the black commentary. 
Quote, the word is now associated with life and light, two terms that will be characteristic of this gospel's discourse with life, zoe, occurring 37 times, and light, phos, 22 times. In him was life, God's energizing and life-giving power, sustaining created existence in relation to its creator, and the life was the light of humans, displaying and communicating true knowledge of God to humanity. In Judaism, as has been noted, Torah brings life, as does wisdom, while Torah is also light, and wisdom is a reflection of eternal light, close quote. So, um, in um, ancient Jewish literature, uh, like um, in Baruch, and also in um, Sirach, and Deuteronomy, and Proverbs, and the Psalms, in all these different places, and some of these are obviously scriptural, and some of them are not, um, but in all these different places, we, we kind of get insight into Jewish thinking, and you have these connections that are being made, right? And so, you had Torah, and you had wisdom. Torah was also light, and then wisdom is a reflection of eternal light, and both of those themes, we're not going to get into it right now, but both of those themes are things that um, run smack dab into Jesus and the work of Jesus, right? And so you see these kind of connections. Life and light are these huge Jewish concepts. And now these things are being applied by John to Jesus. Okay. Jesus is better, right? This is the whole message of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is um, the ultimate fulfillment of these things. All of these concepts were important and they are found, they are embodied in Jesus. Now, I really think that this is interesting, that the, the verse actually says, let me, let me read this, just so you're really, really clear here. The life was the light of men. Okay, so there's this identification here of what's going on, right? What? Okay, so in him was life, and the life, whatever the life is, right? That was the light of men. And what's really interesting is the way that um, Andrew Lincoln put that I thought was great. He said, displaying and communicating the true knowledge of God to humanity. The true knowledge of God to humanity. So if that's what's in view here, then what we have is some serious Romans 1 thinking going on, okay? Where we have all these questions that come into mind, and we're getting into apologetics here a little bit, where, um, you know, some practitioners of apologetics make a big deal out of Romans 1 and saying that, well, you know, all men know God. And so you know who God is. And so you should repent, therefore, right? Because you know who God is. And um, that means that you're not going to be able to condemn God one day for, you know, not giving you enough evidence or whatever the case may be. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like it or lump it, frankly, this is just true. This is how the Bible approaches this. The Bible, in general, approaches mankind as in its relation to God as the fact that um, no one will stand before God with an excuse that he did not have enough evidence, that he didn't know who God was, etc. And 
while I am not uh, of the, you know, especially Calvinist um, reformed tradition, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a particular theological commitment to that. Um, I, I think, again, we're leaving that stuff on the table and just saying, what does the Bible say, right? I mean, I'm not looking to put it into a framework. I know sometimes that's um, hard not to do. Um, in some cases, maybe even unavoidable, but but I'm not trying to, to craft a framework here. I'm just trying to say, look, like, you know, what does the Bible say? And it's clear that the Bible directly teaches that, that um, men know God and they suppress the knowledge of him. Now, does that mean that, 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 that the existence of God is in their conscious awareness? Okay. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what the scripture is teaching there. I think that the point is that in the way that uh, life will be lived out because we live in God's world, it is obvious that God exists, and to deny that is essentially um, intellectual suicide, and it's literally a death sentence. I think Sean McDowell has just a really, really helpful um, analogy, um, a way of teaching this. He talks about the, the beach ball. Okay, when it says that men suppress the knowledge of God, even though they have that, it's kind of like if you took a beach ball and you were trying to to keep that beach ball underwater and you pushed it down no matter how hard or for how long you pushed it down, eventually that beach ball is coming back up to the surface, right? It, it It's going to resurface. And that's what happens when we're being philosophically careful and we're watching our words and we're having these conversations. Sometimes it's really easy to think about... Um, you know, a skeptic might be able to conjure uh, scenarios in which they say God does not exist or whatever. But then when they live life and they're not thinking about it and they're not being careful, inevitably these things happen where they bear um, the image, right? I mean, I don't know another way to say it, right? They they evidence that they know who God is. They, uh, For example, the I wrote a long time ago uh, on my blog the example of a biology professor who teaches in school that his kids are the product of um, time plus chance and, you know, evolved pond scum and the survival of the fittest and all, you know, all that. These things get taught in the biology class and then you come home and you kiss them on the cheek because you love them. And it's like, you know, what's what's wrong with this picture? There, there are two conflicting things going on here. And the point that is being made in Romans 1 is that, yeah, all men... Um, know that God exists. Whether it's in the conscious awareness is not what's in view there, okay? What's in view is that men will display that they have a knowledge of God, this innate knowledge of God. We see this in Romans 2, the moral knowledge of God, right? Men cannot help but display that. It's just the bottom line. And so here when we come into John, the same kind of thing appears to be going on here. Okay, the life is the light of men. Okay, it's it's the true knowledge of God, right? Humanity knows. We know that we have this spiritual nature. And this is what the Bible is essentially communicating. So in John's logic, the word not only created and sustains everything other than God, okay, 
Again, there's God and everything other. God is a trinity. The Word is the second person of the trinity. He is the uncreated one. Everything other than him is created and sustained by him. And the scriptures directly tell us that Jesus is the one who created and that Jesus is the one who sustains everything. But now also, the very essence of life itself is found in him. And I just think it's really interesting Life is one of those things that biologists have a really hard time defining. Now, again, I don't think biological life is um, a, a fair picture of exactly the kind of thing that is in view here. But regardless, human life, human life uh, is a part. It's distinct from all other life. It is altogether unique. And whatever that kind of life is, whatever human life is, it is defined by Christ. Jesus was the perfect human, okay? I, I often <laughs> beat this drum. Um, I'm not really a fan of saying things like to err is human, etc. Okay, I, I, I get the point. I do. I also understand that um, as humans, we are living in sin, okay? We are affected by what happened uh, in the fall. We have this sinful relationship to God. I, I completely understand that but the goal is actually to become more human not less the reason is because jesus did not become non-human or less human when he rose no uh, he lived the perfect sinless life and then he actually became more human <laughs> i mean <laughs> when he wrote you know, he became the true essence of humanity when he rose again glorified humanity um, to be human is not a bad thing. Our, our goal is to be more human. To be more human is to be like Jesus, to be the perfect human. That's the goal. And so uh, I think there's absolutely no contradiction here, you know, no confusion here. When we say that Jesus embodies the essence of life itself, yeah, it does mean that we're uh, on track to become more human, but that's the goal, that Jesus is, is making us into that person, right? He is conforming us to the image of his son, and his son is the perfect human in whom human life itself is um, sustained and exists. And I think it's just beautiful. It's, it's marvelous what is being communicated, even in this one little verse of scripture. Okay. So that's the first thing is that Jesus embodies the essence of life itself. The second truth to, to kind of talk about that we find in these passages is that light overcomes darkness in old creation and new creation. So we have this theme here where we see the word as light the word as a light. So not only life, but also light. Let's continue for a moment here with Lincoln. Quote, the contrast which follows between light and darkness is one that would also have been familiar from Jewish tradition, whether in the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 3 to 5, in apocalyptic writings, or in more developed form in the Qumran literature. In the more developed form of the contrast, light and darkness came to represent the two sides of modified dualism in which God on the side of light is ultimately in control and will triumph in the end. The fourth gospel, in which darkness occurs eight times, shares this perspective. In the opposition between light and darkness, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The verb in the second clause, um, which is the verb catalambano, can mean to grasp, 
comprehend, understand, as well as to master or overcome. The latter is its force in the one other usage in this gospel, which has a similar context. It says this, Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overcome you. That's John twelve thirty five. Darkness represents the world in its alienation from the true source of life and remains as part of the narrative world of the gospel. There can be no peaceful coexistence between such darkness and the light, but the darkness is not able to prevail or extinguish the light of the word. Now, uh, close quote. So, a, a couple things uh, going on there um, that were mentioned that maybe if you're kind of uh, new to Bible nerdery here, um, you, you've never experienced before. So, um, he talks about apocalyptic writings. Um, he talks about the Qumran literature and things like that. Um, just let me just say a couple words about that. So, in general, in uh, <laughs> New Testament authors did not live in a vacuum, okay? So they were familiar with writings, and there were Jewish writings, of course, that were not Christian writings, and yet the New Testament is a profoundly Jewish document. So there were, um, or set of documents, I should say. So there are lots of things going on that would have been floating around in the mind and in the understanding of the writers of the New Testament that were not necessarily uh, inspired scripture. And, and I think this is just one of those things that a lot of Christians don't think about. And, you know, I, frankly, I never thought about it either. I mean, it, was, it wasn't really until I encountered the work of uh, Michael Heiser that I really started to, to dig into this and understand this a little more and, you know, agree with him uh, on things or, or, or not. I, I think it's certainly just a, uh, just a fact uh, of the matter that you had writing that was going on during this time from the Second Temple Jewish period, which is the period um, between the Testaments, right? Sometimes it's called the Intertestamental period. Um, in the scholarly literature, it's referred to as the Second Temple period uh, for the Jewish people. And so there were lots of things and works being written and, you know, worldview stuff being discussed and beliefs and views being hashed out that, that happened outside the confines of the New Testament, right? That This was not written in a vacuum. The writers of the New Testament had a conscious awareness of a lot of this stuff. And so some of these themes you can trace through and you actually... Um, can get a better insight into what New Testament authors were thinking a lot of times by understanding where similar concepts that they address are mentioned in some of this other kind of um, literature. And so um, he references apocalyptic writings, right? So this would be writings that, that deals with um, final judgment type of topics. And then uh, the Qumran literature. So this is a, a, a particular, um, there was a, a community uh, in Qumran that, um, where a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, were found, and so there was a great deal of information from here. And so when we talk about Qumran, we're talking about the community that lived there that was producing um, writings, um, and some of it was scripture, some of it was not. And these were uh, things that were uncovered and found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's just a super basic introduction uh, to that stuff. And uh, I, to to say that I am an expert in all that would be just to, to go well beyond uh, where I'm out with that. Um, I'm certainly not. But I did want to kind of introduce you to those concepts in case you were hearing things there for the first time that you have never heard before. So again, the thrust of this is that is that darkness is overcome by the light. And again, we're drawn back to creation, right? God's very first act of creation was to overcome physical darkness with uh, physical 
light. And, and so now it has become spiritual, right? Now this is being brought again from the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity and with a different kind of mission. We're not talking about the creation of physical life now. We're talking about new creation. We're talking about spiritual rebirth, right? This is kind of the context that's being set up for us here in the uh, Gospel of John. Here's Osborne with a helpful thought. Quote, the imagery of light is another major concept appearing 20 to 3 times in John. The light-darkness motif is a dominant theme in the gospel. Here it is part of what is called the universal salvific will of God, presented in verses 4, 7, 9, and here. Putting the three together, God sheds his salvific light on all humanity, verse 4, so that they may experience that light and believe, verse 7. And that means every single person is convicted by the light of God, verse 9. The doctrine is best defined in 2 Peter 3, 9, where Peter states that God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This looks to the revelation of God in Jesus, as all of us are confronted with our utter sinfulness by the light of Jesus and his sacrificial death, so our sins could be forgiven. Here, we are at the very heart of John's gospel message. Close quote. Um, let me just read to you uh, just the whole passage. I don't think I've done that yet, actually. So let me just read to you, just so you can get a grasp of what he was talking about there, uh, of kind of the, the, the theme of the universal salvific will of God, okay? So here is verse 4 through verse 9. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So maybe you're, you can better follow Osborne's logic there. Um, he sheds the light on all humanity so that they may experience and believe, and every single person is going to be convicted by the light of God. So that's the message that is going on there and that's being expressed. Again, we're in new creation, talking about the imagery of light and life and the embodiment of physical life and the, the light of God being shed to all humanity, okay? Now, what's really cool here is if you look back to the Old Testament, now we have something really, 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 really neat, okay? So, it's very, very important, and this is something that I neglected, again, for a long time, that I think you need to really pay close attention to as you're studying your Bible. I've said this already, and I'm just going to say it again. The, the New Testament documents are profoundly Jewish, okay? Now, they obviously break away in some very distinct, very important, and very significant points from Jewish teaching and doctrine. Absolutely. The Christian message is obviously not the Jewish message. However, however, if you look at the Old Testament, right, those documents, the, those documents that were inspired of God, they are part, ultimately, of the Christian message, right? Because we have Old Testament, we have Jewish and Hebrew prophecy that um, talks at length about the life and the events of Jesus, Okay, so 
looking in hindsight now, we do need to realize that we we have an Old Testament, and these are part of the Christian scriptures. The Hebrew Bible is a part of the Christian message and worldview. And so um, I'm really disheartened by very popular teachers, and I won't go down this rabbit hole too far, but by very popular, well-known pastors and Bible teachers who want to create this sharp distinction between the Old and New Testament and say, no, we, we're Christians of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. We don't need any of that. Uh, Old Covenant or that Hebrew Bible stuff. Like, no, that is so, so very misguided. What we have in the beauty of the New Testament flows from the, the beauty in the message of the Old Testament. So many New Testament concepts would flat out lose their bite. They would lose their significance. Frankly, they would lose their theology if it wasn't for what the Old Testament precedent was, for the Hebrew Bible, okay? And so this is the same kind of concept here. The whole light and darkness thing was huge, huge in the Hebrew Bible. And so this is something that is built on now here in the New Testament. It, it's not novel, right? And it goes far beyond just the basic ethereal concept of light being able to shine through and overcome darkness. Yes, that is a part of it, right? But it's more than that. It goes deeper than that. So I'm going to read a pretty lengthy entry here from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that I think is... um is useful. I might word things a little differently in one or two places. I might have a little spot of disagreement, but for the most part, I, I agree with what this is saying, and I think it's just wonderful. So here's from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. At the heart of the Old Testament's symbolic use of light and darkness is the connection the text makes between the light and personal presence of God and the darkness is all that opposes God. The link begins as early as Genesis 1-2, where God creates light to serve as a boundary to darkness. Here, light is not only instantly linked to God's presence, but also institutes time and order over the chaos of the formless void. God creates a functioning, orderly environment for people, and the creation of stars gives humanity seasons and cycles of time by which to order their lives. The link of light with the Creator also acts as a symbolic tie between light and life. If light symbolizes God's presence, and God is the author of life, then surely where God is, life abounds. The link between God's presence and light in Genesis remains strictly symbolic. Genesis 1-2 presents light as a servant of God, subject to God's orders. Light may symbolically suggest the concept of God's presence, but it is not God, nor is it his presence. This understanding sets ancient Judaism apart from its contemporaries that worshipped bodies of light as gods in themselves. It is clear from the outset that the duality of light and darkness, good and evil, is not an equal duality, but one in which God is unquestionably sovereign over the opposition. For example, darkness is bound by God's words alone at creation, making clear his absolute preeminence over darkness. In this uneven duality, darkness becomes synonymous with all that opposes God or characterizes those who oppose evil. Oh, excuse me, who, or characterizes those who oppose God. Evil, the forces of evil, and the consequences of evil thus dwell together under this symbolic umbrella. Foolishness, opposition to God's people, and deliberate sin result in judgment and condemnation. The Old Testament poetic and prophetic texts also develop the light and darkness dualism. For example, Proverbs 6.23 equates walking in the light with walking according to God's plans, purposes, and character. 
The Old Testament also links light to concepts of wisdom, understanding, and righteousness. These concepts are defined in terms of a person's deliberate alignment with God's plans, purposes, and character. Thus, light is the sphere of God's presence, and life within that sphere evidences those qualities that reflect his character. If God's presence is light and life, then opposition to him brings darkness and death. If condemnation and death are spoken of as darkness, then salvation from these evils is also spoken of in terms of light. Thus, also God himself, his presence, becomes a light, leading a person out of darkness toward salvation. The tone of confidence that pervades these passages demonstrates that there is no doubt that God's presence as light will conquer and even eliminate the darkness. Old Testament prophecies of the ultimate restoration of God's people are full of the language of light and dawn, close quote. So, like, when you start to just penetrate the surface a little bit, we got here because we read that in him was life and the, and the life was the light of men, right? And so you, you start to look at, at, at these themes and um, I didn't read through each of the references, but for everything that I just read, a lot of those concepts that were mentioned have just loads of Bible verse references after them where you can follow these threads and you can see these themes and you see now the significance, right? We're just, we're, we're not just talking about like some random, like, Oh, you know, the light overcomes the darkness. You know, we're, we're, just, we're just not talking about that. We're talking about this entire, um, essentially worldview of this light and darkness duality. And I barely scratched the surface. I eliminated all the stuff from the Lexham Bible Dictionary entry that had anything to do with the Old Testament, or excuse me, uh, rather with the New Testament, with the Second Temple literature, right? With um, ancient Near Eastern literature. You should see some of what I read that had to do with the light and darkness themes in the other cultures around. See, light and darkness was something that was very big uh, in terms of... Um, thematic in the ancient Near East, but there's a difference in the way that it's presented in the uh, Hebrew Bible versus how it's presented in other cases. You remember um, that uh, f from the quote here that I was reading from the uh, dictionary entry that this is an uneven duality in the Christian scriptures and in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. But it's not that way. In the ancient Near East, other cultures around saw light and darkness as immediate rivals, and they were even, right? Evenly matched. And so um, there's some huge nuance there as you look to other cultures around Israel. And again, just to see how unique Israel was in those regards. They had similarities, but they had significant differences that made them entirely different. And so uh, to really understand some of these themes that are going on, it, it, I mean, you just got to penetrate back and see where the origin of these themes comes from. And you look at the Hebrew scriptures and some of the cultures that were around and really start to understand the significance of this theme. So when, when John is introducing the word, he's introducing Jesus, he's introducing him as the ultimate embodiment of the light and life of man. He is um, the, the, the one who will triumph over spiritual darkness, that which lives inside of man, and also all which opposes God. Uh, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> Jesus is the answer to all evil, to all darkness, to everything that would oppose the knowledge of God. And then finally, in this passage, we see that John the Baptist bore witness to the light. 
Okay. Now, I, I want to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here just for a second, and uh, and then we'll wrap up. There's not very much to this point. It's a it's a pretty basic point, but I think there could be a little more to it uh, than I was reading in a couple of the commentaries, and so um, I'm not submitting this as this is for sure what's going on. I would have to think about it a lot more, but I do think it's kind of interesting. Okay. So the question that, that I want to kind of reflect on is this. Why does the light need a witness? Think about this. Why, uh, why does the light need a witness? Why is a witness included? Why, why are we talking about John the Baptist? Why was John the Baptist sent, right? Well, we are going to see later that there's a, a fulfillment uh, to prophecy here. There's a prophetic element. Um, but, I mean, it's not necessarily necessary, right? I, I mean, is it necessary that we have one who uh, is a witness to the light, to, to the to the you know, to new creation uh, coming, essentially, and bearing witness to it. Um, so, I don't know. Um, I would like to think there is perhaps a possible divine counsel connection here. Now, if you've never heard me talk about the divine counsel before, I recorded an episode on this a little while ago, um, and the, the title was um, The Gods Are Real. So go back and you can find that um in the uh, in the episode queue back in your in your uh, older episodes um i don't know this is it was earlier this year uh probably that we recorded it or late last year one so anyway just go back a little bit and look um but it was called the gods are real and in there we we kind of talk about this um supernatural meta narrative that scripture seems to to have that deals with spiritual opposition to Yahweh in a way that most of us are not used to thinking about it. And without going all into it, I'm trying to think how I can I can get into this without, you know, again, if you really want the context for this, you just need to go back and uh, and, and listen to that episode or um, the uh, there's a, a blog post that accompanies it. You can find on the uh, on the blog to steveshram.com. Um, but w- when I think about uh, the, the the connection back to creation, we find in the uh, book of Job, actually, I want to see if I can find it uh, as I'm recording here. Um, we find in the book of Job that there was a witness to original creation. Okay. Um Okay, here it is in uh, verse uh, chapter number 38 and verse number 7. So this is actually God's response to Job. Uh, this is the Lord speaking out of the uh, whirlwind. And this is basically God saying, well, look, you know, who are you to say all this stuff, Job? Like, you know, this is God questioning him. Like, were you there when this happened? Were you there when that happened? And did you do this? Did you do that? And of course, you know, God's point is, well, I did all of that, not you. Um, and so I know what's best. And so he says, when we get to verse number seven, um, well, let's read verse number six. Um, Whereupon are the foundation, uh, fa- foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, so the morning stars and the sons of God, these are common uh, Old Testament sort of um, indications that you have spiritual beings present. And when I say spiritual beings, note that I am not just talking about angels. An angel is a role, okay? The word angel um, uh, means messenger, okay? It's, it's usually the word uh, malak, um, 
in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and again, it's it, it means messenger. It, it's a role. It, it doesn't have any ontology. Okay, it doesn't have a state of being associated with it. It's just a role. And so, when we look at the uh, sons of God and the morning stars, of course, there's Hebrew parallelism going on there. So, whatever the morning stars are, that's what the sons of God are as well. And there are. Um, Two kind of takes on this. I think pretty much everybody is willing to admit that this is at least symbolically speaking of, again, spiritual beings that are, you know, some people call them angels, but again, they're not angels. Um, there's at least a, a kind of symbolic connection here. Some people would say that in the ancient worldview, this is actually just um, evincing a very ancient worldview that would say something like the, that they thought that the stars literally were spiritual beings um, who worshiped God. And so, uh, you know, without getting all all into the weeds of that, if, if you want to just take the symbolism view, that's fine. The point I'm trying to make is that there was a witness to original creation, okay? Whatever the case is here, um, you know, from this we could surmise maybe that, um, you know, things were made in stages and God made the heavenly realm and spiritual beings uh, prior to actually, you know, creating the earth and maybe, you know, you get into the philosophies of time and like when did things happen and all that. I don't want to go down all of those paths, but I just want to make the simple point that um, when the earth was being created, the Bible teaches that that there were sons of God, morning stars there shouting for joy, singing together. Um, they were witnesses in creation. They were uh, experiencing this. They were part of this. They were they were um, rejoicing and celebrating with God as he was creating earth, as he was creating the world as we know it, as he was creating humanity, right? Like, they were there. There were spiritual beings present there. There were, if I may say this, there were witnesses. There were witnesses, okay? Another thing you look at is um, there is a very, um, the term witness brings to mind some very judicial aspects of the sons of God. It actually says that the law um, was given by, and I forget exactly where the, the reference is, that might be in Hebrews in the New Testament to this, referring back to the law being given on Mount Sinai and being testified to by angels. <laughs> Again, just back to this Old Testament imagery stuff where you you have um, the 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 council of the king um, being present for judicial matters and actually witnessing um, the giving of the law, okay? Now, what's interesting is the same kind of connections are being drawn here. Oh, I just love this stuff, man. The same exact kind of connections are being drawn here when we look back at John chapter 1. There is a judicial aspect to this. In fact, I, I wasn't even planning to go here on this, um, but um, but uh, our, our our commentators go into this as well. So looking here at uh, Grant Osborne, um, he says, uh, let's see, he says this. Let me see if I can get back to it right here. He says this, the ministry of this John is being described in verse 7 as his being a witness, which is a frequent theme that speaks of official testimony to the reality of Christ. As a witness, he was sent from God to testify concerning that light, Jesus as the word. There is a judicial flavor to this concept. Jesus is presented in the courtroom of this world, and the witness to this reality is none other than John the Baptist. The purpose of this testimony dominates this gospel, so that through him all might believe. 
The verdict is clear, and it is proved that Jesus is indeed the Word, the light of God. This continues the message of verses 4 and 5, namely, God's desire that all mankind might respond to the light by making a faith decision for Christ. This doesn't teach universalism, for every person will not be saved, but every person will be encountered by the light and be convicted by it. The mission theme of John's gospel begins here, preparing the reader for one, uh, chapter 1, 35-39, where two who hear the Baptist witness do indeed believe and follow Jesus, close quote. So, again, I'm, I'm not saying that this is gospel here, even though we're reading a gospel, but I do think it's possible that there's this divine counsel connection, just as there was a witness to original creation, there was also a witness to new creation. There was a witness. There was one going before, bearing witness to that light, even though he was not the light himself. And that itself is a theme we'll look at maybe a little bit later, but uh, there's also this idea here that there were there were folks who thought that uh, John the Baptist was actually this Messiah figure, and there were whole cults around that. And so, um, lest you know, the biblical author um, not make himself clear, you know, he includes that uh, John was not that light. He makes this very clear and very explicit that John was not the light. He was just bearing witness to the light. And I don't know, it's just a question in my mind that maybe that um, maybe there's a connection between the the witness to the light here and then the you know the uh, uh, the light of new creation and then a witness to the light in old creation maybe some uh, thematics going on there so if you have any thoughts about that yeah i'm open to hearing about that um Guys, that is John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Man, this is just a super, like, dense and, and, and packed portion of Scripture. And I have to admit, like, even me, um, you know, I mean, trying to teach this stuff, like, I, I've never thought about so much of this stuff when I've just read these verses. And a lot of it is, it's, it's repetitive. We've memorized these verses. We've heard these verses our whole life. But when you begin to really dig into what's behind it and the thinking and then the Old Testament theology and then... Um, it just the whole mosaic really starts to come together and uh, creates something theologically absolutely beautiful. And uh, it's my privilege and my honor to be able to share that with you. Well, I want to thank you for joining us here. Um, on the Bible Nerd Podcast. I would encourage you, if you like what you have heard, if you think that this would be a useful podcast for others, if you would, this is something really cool and really helpful that you can do. If you'll just take a screenshot on your phone, I know like on an iPhone, if you hold the home button and then like the volume up button, you just press those together at one time, it will take a screenshot. If you could take a screenshot of your podcast player as you're listening to this episode, share that on social media and tag me in it so that I can see you in it. That would be super awesome help uh, and very helpful. Um, just, a, a, you know, I don't charge anything obviously for these podcasts and this would just be a really great way to spread the message and share the message and get the message out to more people. Just take a screenshot on your phone and share it on your social media. Let people know you're listening and, um, and tag me in it so that I see that and I can, uh, I can thank you personally. Okay. Um, all right, that's all I have for you today. Thank you again so much for joining me. Next time, we're going to dive into the next set of verses here in the book of John, and I'm super excited to go down that route with you. I want you to um, uh, remember I have a free book offer going on for you right now. You can go to steveschramcom slash book. You can grab my book, God, the Great Commission, and You. It's absolutely free. I just ask that you pay a small amount for shipping and handling, and uh, you're also going to get um, some bonuses that go along with that as well. Five of them actually, $124 worth of value uh, just in the bonuses that you get for picking up the book. So uh, again, steveschramcom slash book, and it's all about how to witness, how to share Christ with others, and some really important things 
that have to do with the Great Commission that, again, most Christians uh, don't typically think about. So if you're sitting on the sidelines, if you have not been witnessing, you've not been sharing Christ with others, know that it does not have to be as intimidating as you think it is. And I'm going to try to prove that to you in the, the free book. So stevestrand.com slash book is where you can pick that up. Thank you for spending your time with me, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. God bless.